Ephesians chapter 6, if you would. Uh, we've been in this letter for a good many, many weeks. We've covered a lot of ground. And now we're coming to the end. We've only got about 14 or 15 verses left. Um, I do have to ask, as we start to step into this last section, just so I'll kind of know how to plan for the next week or two, how many here have heard me talk about this before, this last chapter? Raise your hand. Don't be bashful. Raise your hand nice and high. So most of you haven't seen it, okay? Oh, this is going to be so much fun. I love it. Um, we'll talk about that as we get into it. So if you've been with us, you, um, you know that we've covered two major themes in the Ephesian letter. Uh, the first part is the, our status. We've talked about our status. And, and I, I kind of imagine I may be sounding somewhat like a broken record on this point, but it is so important that we get it. We have the status of adopted children, children of, of the living God. We have the status of citizens in his kingdom, um, members of his household. If, if we get that, if we can really get a hold of that simple reality, the status he has given us as his children, those he's called out of darkness, we just, we're way ahead uh, in this Christian walk. That's the first thing we talked about, our status. We talked about our walk, uh, living out our lives in a way that represents our new status, living in such a way that it makes it clear that we exercise both the privileges and act with all the responsibilities of those who are adopted children citizens of the kingdom, members of the household. So Paul talked about our walk, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, walking with a renewed mind, walking in love, walking as children of light, and walking with wisdom, or some translations would say circumspectly. Right? Now we turn to the last major theme of the letter. Right? Um, those of you who may be familiar with it, years ago, um, a guy by the name of Watchman Nee, how many remember that name? Really great, great writer many, many years ago. He wrote a really good book on Ephesians in which, and entitled it Sit, Walk, Stand. How many have read that one? He encapsulates the entire letter of Ephesians in those three words. Sit, we are seated with him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Walk, walking that out. And then lastly, standing. When we come to that third principle, that third point, that third theme, uh, standing. It takes up a lot less space than the other ones. And 11 verses encompass the whole idea. Uh, it's a section that gets an awful lot of attention, this, this last part of Ephesians. Uh, part of it is because it's really important. It's worth our attention. Also because, let's just be honest, it really lends itself to preaching. If you've been in the church long at all, you've probably heard a good many sermons or teachings on this last section of the Ephesian letter. And it's, it's very valid. We do need to pay attention to it. But we need to make sure that we pay attention to it and, and that we get um, not just the really strong visual. It's a really powerful visual that Paul draws in these last few verses. But we want to do it right. We want to get the point that Paul is trying to make. We want to uh, understand why this thing we call the armor of God is so important for the reasons that, that Paul um, enumerates for us. So let's just go ahead and pick it right up. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we're going to do verses 10 through 13. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. And then he begins the next verse by saying, stand firm. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And as we look to your word this morning, pray, Lord, we would hear from you. And as your word is, is shared, Lord, the bread of life broken, may your spirit guide all we say and do. And everything we hear, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, up to this point, the, the letter's been pretty straightforward. We've talked about our status. Oh, that we could really grasp that status that is ours. And our response to that status, to walk in a manner that reflects our status. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but we also know that it's, never, it's not that easy. There's a problem that all of us face as we would walk out this Christian faith. It plagues us. Uh, it's kind of an environmental concern, if you will. Um, I think this was made really clear to me a good many years ago. Um, as many of you may know, where'd Tom go? Tom Box, where'd he go? Tom, I'm back. He's back in the kitchen. Tom and I fished a lot together, and I'll never forget this moment when he, we have a lot of good memories fishing. There was a moment we, we were fishing for halibut and I'm long lining. And um, it was a beautiful, beautiful southeast Alaska day. You know, southeast Alaska on a clear day when the sun is out in the water, there's nothing like it in the, in the world, man. You know, those five days a year are glorious. <laughs> yeah. It was one of them. And um, we, were we, had, we had a good set going. We were pulling up some nice fish, but, but there was a heavy one. We were pulling by hand. I won't get into that. Um, we were pulling by hand, and Tom was really struggling with this one, and I went to the side of the boat to help him. And we just pulled up this slab. I mean, this thing was enormous. And, of course, you know, you're really excited. You're really happy. You know, that's money. And um, just as this thing broke water, it was, I don't know, it was at least 100 pounds, it opened its mouth like, yeah, all right. And in that moment, I said to myself, I am so glad I'm not a herring. <laughs> I mean, you think about it for a moment. How would you like to go through your whole life? Your only real reason for existence is feeding something else, being food for something else, right? And what it made me realize in that moment is as beautiful as that day was, as gorgeous as everything was, it's not that pretty at all. Not if you live down there. And the truth of the matter is, it's just as dangerous up here. And the, the things that threaten us as, as, as the people of God are, are so much different than what threatens a little fish swimming around the ocean. It's, it's still really dangerous, and it's dangerous because our world is horribly fallen. Our world is horribly broken. And yeah, we played our part in that. Um, it's our sin that got the whole thing messed up, and we deal with that every day. But there's another one that's responsible for the messed up nature of the world in which we live. There's another one who's responsible for the dangers that lurk all around us. There is one who hunts us and pursues us and wants to consume us every bit as much as that big old halibut looking for a herring or two to chomp down. We're the herring in that equation. And he's not alone. That, the evil one's not alone. He has an entire army, if you will. And their intention is to destroy us, 
Their intention is to distract us from our walk and, if at all possible, steal our status in Christ. Now, I'm not even going to get into the argument of whether or not it's possible for the evil one to steal our status. I'm not even going to get into that because the reality is he tries. And those who serve him try. And therefore, we have to deal with it. That reality confronts us as we walk, as we live out this relationship that Christ has purchased for us. And so we struggle. The Christian life is a struggle. Anyone who tells you otherwise, to quote the movie, is selling something. Yeah, right. It's hard. Now, that would not have been news, of course, to the Ephesian church. You wouldn't have had to tell them that. That church started in conflict. We've talked about this you know, some. When Paul came to Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 records the events. What was the reaction to Paul's arrival? They had a riot. The whole town. Now the text says the whole city was there. Now we, you know, scholars tell us in antiquity that the population of Ephesus was probably about a quarter of a million. I don't think all quarter of a million showed up for the riot. But it was a lot. The amphitheater of Ephesus was one of the largest in the Roman Empire. It was filled with people rioting against what the Apostle Paul had said, what was happening in their city. Though when the book of Revelation describes the Ephesian church, it talks about their perseverance, how they had endured hardship. It was a city whose entire existence revolved around a pagan temple and its worship. All other, all, the economy of the city, we've talked about this already, the entire economy of the city was based on people coming to worship at this great pagan temple. So culturally, socially, spiritually, everything is geared in a direction completely the opposite of this church. This church, spiritually, economically, every way you can describe it, is at odds with the surrounding culture the prevailing environment, the Ephesians knew about trial, they knew about hardship. And here in the sixth chapter of this letter, Paul talks about the primary source of that difficulty. He speaks of a struggle. Verse 12, he says, for our struggle, we all struggle. It's part of life, we know that, right? And the struggle, the difficulties addressed here, of course, a lot of it is our own doing, our own sin, our own folly, our own errors. But this is, a different, this is a different struggle. The word that Paul uses here is the word pali. pali. Um, it's a powerful word. It's a real strong visual. And interestingly, it's not used anywhere else in Scripture. This is one of those words that gets used one place and one place only. Um, the normative word that Paul uses for struggle or conflict is agona. That's where we get our English word agony from. Those of us who are old enough to remember the wide world of sports, you can't not have the visual, you know, the agony of defeat. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The word comes from the bend of the arm, and it's from, it's from the world of wrestling. Paul must have been a big wrestling fan because he used it a lot. And the pictures of two wrestlers locked together, right? Well, he doesn't use that word, though. He uses this word poly, which interestingly also refers to wrestling. Um, but it refers to a specific kind of wrestling. Now, we're talking about the struggles they face, the struggles we face every day as we walk out the Christian life. Keep that in mind when we talk about this word. Paul's referring to a specific form of wrestling where the winner was only determined when they were able to put their hand on the neck of their opponent and bury it in the dirt of the arena and hold it there. 
hand on their opponent's neck, pinned, either unwilling or incapable of resisting anymore, completely subdued. Now, if that doesn't describe certain moments in the Christian walk, at least how we, I can't speak for anybody else, how I feel sometimes, nothing else does. As evil attempts to throw us down and pin us. Now, some might say, you know, John, you shouldn't talk that way. You shouldn't describe evil. You shouldn't give evil so much credit because it sounds like evil might win. Well, evil is out to win, and the evil one is out to win, and those are the directions to which he invests his energy, so we have to recognize it. How do we respond to this real, real threat? Well, actually, we should go back to the 10th verse and start there. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong. Literally, be made strong. Both the word itself and the grammar that Paul uses to, to describe it describes a power that does not originate from within. It's a power that starts on the outside and then moves in. You see, the man or woman whose strength is of their own may be impressive by the world standards. It may achieve all, all manner of, of accolade in the world. That's nothing in the fight against evil. It is worthless. Any strength that emanates from us is completely worthless. But this is a strength in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Paul says. And literally what that means is under the rule of his might. The only way we can hope to resist the evil that surrounds us, that permeates our world, is to be strengthened in his power and in such a way that that power brings us under the rule of his might. And I guess the best way I, I can, in my own mind, um, imagine that. Um, I can remember the first time my dad put a firearm in my hand and said, son, it's your time to shoot it. Oh, wow. I get to handle it. I get to shoot it, right? So did he, like he hand it to me and say, you know, to hurt yourself and walk away? No, 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 no. I knelt down the way he had taught me to kneel down, and he knelt down right behind me. And his arms were around me, right? I was the one doing it. I got, I, got to shoot, I got to shoot the rifle. It was great. It was cool. But I was completely under his control the entire time. He was not about to let anything happen that wasn't exactly what he wanted to happen, right? That's the idea. Dad, giving me that freedom and in the same moment exercising his control that I could handle the kind of power he'd put in my hands. How much more intimate is it when the very power that animates us and enables us actually resides within us. See, that's the dynamic of the Christian life. That is what makes the Christian life so incredibly different than any other attempt to live by any other code or rule or religious philosophy. We're talking about the extraordinary dynamic of the Christian walk, that which is resident within us. Now, doctrine is absolutely vital, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely essential that we have a sound understanding of the Christian doctrine. Um, Perry last week spoke about the Apostles' Creed, and as Pastor Joyce and I were listening to that, we had to smile at one another because I had just said to her like an hour before that, you know, when we finish Ephesians, we're going to talk about the Apostles' Creed. So I'm glad that Perry got that started in the right direction, yeah. Because it's essential that we know what we believe. Paul says uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself, meaning your conduct, and the teaching, same word as doctrine, 
Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Sound doctrine teaching is absolutely essential. It keeps us from going off the rails. But in and of itself, it's not sufficient. Because we are dependent, absolutely dependent, on the indwelling presence of God by His Spirit. You put those two things together, a sound understanding of what Scripture teaches us, the indwelling presence of His Spirit, the power that's there, and what do you have? You have strength in the Lord and in His mighty power. That's what Paul calls us to do. When we turn to Christ, we're born again. We're born by His Spirit. We're drawn by His Spirit in the first place. We're convicted by His Spirit, born again, renewed by His Spirit. The only way we survive as His followers is the presence of His Spirit within us. No other formula works, right? And that's because we're in a fight for our souls. I mean... Disappointed and as frustrated as we were by what happened to the Heartreach Building and Wasilla Bible Church, did it surprise anybody? I, I was a little bit surprised that when Pastor Joyce stood up and mentioned that at the banquet, that there was this audible gasp. Now, I understood they simply didn't know it had happened. But should it surprise us? Not in the least. Not in the least. This world in which we live is simply not on the same page with us. We are in a fight, and the enemy of our souls, the evil one, will not stop until his hand is in our, on our neck and our faces are in the dirt. And we're incapable or unwilling to continue. So we're in a fight, a spiritual fight. Now here's typically, as we move forward in the passage, where we start to get into the details that Paul draws of the spiritual armor, and it's really easy to get caught up in that visual. And we will talk about the visuals. We'll talk about the elements that Paul, Paul describes in the armor. We're going to do that next week. Um, I'm so glad that so many of you haven't seen it. It makes it so much more exciting. Um, I'm going to bring a 22-pound shield in here for you to look at. Yeah. And even hold. And a helmet that weighs a whole lot more than you can imagine until you put it on. And I'm going to let you put it on. There's so many really powerful visuals, but we don't want to get caught up in the visuals until we know exactly why Paul talks about them. So when Paul says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God, we're going to take two weeks to cover this. And this week we're going to talk about the why first. The why is because of the conflict that we're in. In verse 11 and then again in verse 13, when Paul says put on the full armor of God, he uses the word panoplia. And I want to establish this as the groundwork before we get to next week. Panoplia. It comes right into English as panoply. Now that's not a word we use very much, but it's in the dictionary. You know, typically, you know, you might go out on a really beautiful starry evening and talk about the, pan the panoply of the, of the heavens. That's how we use it, it when we use it. Um, it comes from two Greek words, pan, which means everything. Some of us may be old enough to remember the Pan-American games. Actually, they still have them, just no one pays attention unless you're involved. Uh, Pan-American Airlines, how many can remember that one? That's an old one. That was the first airline that flew to all the Americas. So pan just means all or everything. And then opla means stuff, all the stuff. 
but it specifically refers to a certain kind of stuff. It's the stuff of a soldier, right? So Paul, and it's as far as we're going to go on that this morning. Paul says, tells the Ephesian believers they need to deliberately avail themselves of all the stuff of a soldier getting ready for spiritual conflict. But here's the important thing. The word Paul repeats again and again in this passage, four times in the section we've already read, is to stand. That's what we have to have cemented in our mind before we even start to talk about these really powerful pictures in this visual, right? Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. They're, they're in the midst of conflict. They're in the, they're, I mean, the, the, this massive pagan temple is right there, right? Paul says you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. That massive pagan temple was the height of the devil's scheming, right? But rather than tell the Ephesian church to march up there and try to tear that temple down or spray paint on the walls or protests or whatever else he might have said, he simply tells them to stand. Rather than direct the church, the church flock in Ephesus to fight against that, he says, I want you to simply stand. You already occupy the high ground. The church, by definition, occupies the high ground. We have the truth of the gospel. It is saving truth. It is redeeming truth. It is life-changing truth. We have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the strength of the body of Christ. We are the adopted children of the king. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are members in his household. We have the high ground. There is no reason we have to go looking for a fight. We don't have to go out and look for a fight. That's not our job. Our job is to stand. It's to hold the ground we have. Again, Paul's in Ephesus. Acts 19, he got there, there were a dozen believers. Somebody else had led them to Christ, started this church, Paul came, found a dozen believers, and he starts preaching. He starts teaching these 12 guys, or ladies, we're not told. 12 of them. The Holy Spirit comes on that group. They are moved, they're motivated, they're animated by the Holy Spirit. And as the text reads on, you're going to read Acts chapter 19 yourself, you know, I suggest you do, Right? The next thing you know, we have Paul, as Luke records it, doing extraordinary miracles. Now, that must have been something, because regular miracles are impressive. And he's doing extraordinary miracles, right? Such was it that, that there were exorcists in the town that tried to copy what Paul did, and that blew up on them, right? People had their, brought their magic books, their magic scrolls, and burned them. Now, we don't really, that doesn't really resonate in our culture, so what's that? That's essentially supernatural cookbooks. Based on their understanding of how the supernatural world worked, they could influence, maybe even control supernatural entities, more power of themselves by the proper combination of words and chemical composition, hand gestures, sorcery, as we would think of it. These books were the how-to manuals for sorcery in a culture that was heavily dependent on it. They were worth a fortune, and they burned them because they suddenly realized how useless they were, how powerless they were. People brought them forward and burned them, and then, of course, the riot broke out. No great, no great secret as to why, right? But, but the guy that started the riot, he was a silversmith named Demetrius. He makes an interesting comment in verse 27 of Acts 19. Again, I really suggest you read it. 
He said, the reason he got everybody all excited, he says in verse 27, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this was considered the most wonderful. It was the most impressive of all the marvels of the ancient world. And this guy said, this entire huge thing dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens is going to be completely discredited of all its beauty and power and all of its ability to attract people from all over the empire because of the preaching of one guy? This guy Paul, he's down there talking to 12 people and they're afraid their temple's going to come down. And then he goes on to say this. He says, and, uh, and the goddess herself will be robbed of her divine majesty. People came from all over the empire to worship at this temple. And this guy says, if we let this one guy keep preaching, that's all coming to an end. Give Demetrius credit. He realized who was who. And he realized what was what. And he understood, although he drew wrong conclusions from it, he understood where the real power was. It was in the preaching of one man animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He understood that his pagan, demonic, false god and all that went with it were going to be shown for the fraud that they were. Preaching of one man. Because in the church, we hold the high ground. We have the truth. But we struggle. Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So there's a fight. We're in a fight. Our foes are many, and they're powerful, and we need to know how to fight it well, and that's what we'll get into next week. But before we get into the details of how we fight, we've got to be rock solid on the why we are fighting, because we, we fight because we have reason to rejoice. We hold the high ground. So if you're in the middle of the fight right now, if you're in the middle of a, of a struggle, if you're discouraged, if you're down, if you're sick, if you're weak, remember, we hold the high ground. If you're not in the middle of a conflict or a fight right now, don't worry, one will come your way soon enough. It's on the horizon. Remember in that moment, we hold the high ground, right? John put it this way. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When I was about 12 years old, uh, my folks' house was broken into. It was one of the most traumatic experiences of a relatively not traumatic growing up. I had a really, I had a great life growing up, I did. But I came home from school one day, my mom happened to be in the hospital, so the house was empty. And again, I think I was about 12, and I came around the back of the house, went in the back door all the time, and the back door was open, I thought, well, that's odd. And then I saw the slit in the screen, and I, ooh. And so I did what any brilliant 12-year-old would do. I said to myself, I bet they got in the house this way, and I put my hand through the screen and grabbed the doorknob. Police got a great set of fingerprints off that doorknob. They were mine. Um, yeah. Anyway, they weren't going to catch them. Um, but it, the reason I remember that so clearly is the next two hours are gone. I, I don't know what I did. I have no idea what I did the next two hours. So... And if you had that experience of having your house robbed, you know what I'm talking about. So traumatic, that sense of your, your private world, where you're safe, where you're secure, where, where everything that you can count on is, is, is violated like that. 
I think I just sat down on the front porch and waited for my dad to come home. I know I didn't call anybody. I just waited. The next thing that I have a real clear picture of is sitting at the dining room table after everything was cleaned up, after the police had done whatever they did, and dad talking to a police officer and listing all the stuff that was stolen. That's the next clear. And, um, and of course, when you're that age, you ask all kinds of questions in your mind. And I remember thinking, why did, why did they do that to us? And then it became crystal clear. We had stuff they wanted. Right? We had good stuff. That's why we got robbed. Well, why does the enemy hate us so? Because we got the good stuff. Be encouraged. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. And as fathers, we kind of prepare the ground this morning for this beautiful visual this powerful visual of the Christian arrayed in the holy armor, Lord. Um, we want to make sure that we're looking at it from the right perspective, Lord. To know that our place isn't, isn't to, you know, to kind of go out and look for the enemy so we can smash his head, um, but rather, Father, to celebrate and rejoice the beautiful high ground that we hold as your people. The truth, Father, of your word the power and the truth of your spirit resonant within us, abiding within us. This beautiful thing, Father, the body of Christ that we have, Lord. Father, that's what we want to stand and defend. For your, for your namesake, Father, for your kingdom, for our eternal souls, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.